The Incremental to Exponential Podcast. Hello and welcome to the new podcast series from Capita, where we'll explore how big companies can innovate to survive and grow. I'm Justine Green and each time we'll be meeting a special business guest to hear their story and opinion on our theme. Also, we're joined by Vivek Wadwa and Ishmael Amla, authors of the new book From Incremental to Exponential, How Large Companies Can See the Future and Rethink Innovation. Vivek is a technology entrepreneur and an academic based in Silicon Valley. Hello, Vivek. Hi there. And Ishmael is Capita's Chief Growth Officer. Hi, Ishmael. Hey, Justine. Good to speak to you again. And our special guest this time is Nick Bittell. Nick is Chair of Sport England. He's Chief Executive of the London Marathon and a sports lawyer. Hello, Nick, and welcome. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to take part. Well, considering Nick's pedigree, we should start by assessing each of your uh, sporting abilities. Nick, do you now or did you previously play any sport? Um, I was an extremely modest rugby player, playing uh, school, club, university, um, got injured, got fouled badly playing in America. And uh, that sort of ended my uh, aspirations. And Ishmael, any sporting prowess we should be aware of with you? A very enthusiastic amateur, I would say. But uh, the reason uh, Nick is a hero of mine is I have done the London Marathon about 10 times. Wow. What's your best time, Ishmael? My best time was about 10, 10 years ago. Uh, it was 3.45. That's pretty good. Pretty impressive. And Vivek, do you dust off your basketball or baseball outfits at the weekend? Nope. I mean, if I'm lucky, I'll go hiking a couple of times a week. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. well, moving on, Nick, reflecting on your various roles, is there a particular skill set you've developed that enables you to lead transformation in organisations? I think the most important skill set that I've got is is listening and being able to empower staff um, because the mistake that I think far too many organisations believe is that innovation can only come from the top. Um, one of the things that certainly I've learnt in uh, the London Marathon and, other, and, and Sport England is that uh, we don't have the answers. It's just as likely to come from uh, the wider team as it is from the management group. And uh, we've had a lot of work that we've done techniques to try and bring in other views from the wider business Uh, and then your job is to sift that out develop them and come up with a plan to implement those creative ideas would you say there's a different mindset in the way sports organizations are run compared to say FTSE companies that might be more conducive to innovation Um, I'm afraid not I think it's the opposite actually Um, most sports organizations and and here we're mainly talking about governing bodies uh, most sports organizations are member organizations and they're set up to service their members and one of the great problems that they've had over the years is they haven't thought about and in fact they haven't even known anything about those who are not their customers Uh, and the result of that is they haven't been prepared to innovate when new opportunities come to them if they're not opportunities that serve their existing members they've tended to ignore them I think that has been one of the great problems that we've seen over the years. Vivek and Ishmael, are there any common denominators in big companies that are able to innovate quickly compared to other organisations of a similar large size who can't? You know, what Nick said was the single most important lesson that I wanted to convey. 
when I teach business executives, I say exactly the same thing to them, that innovation is going to come from the bottom, not from the top. It's not going to come from your R&D departments. There's no going to, not going to be any you know, a magical consultant that comes in and gives you an idea and transforms your company. It's your people. It's all about people, 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 people. Yeah, I, I'd add to that. I was reading about the NBA where, you know, last year, actually, the NBA broke attendance records for the fourth straight season. Um, but they also kicked off um, this NBA 2K League, which is the first extension of pro sport into esports. And so there's a brand new revenue stream now kicking off. There's a brand new set of uh, subscribers who wouldn't otherwise be involved in going to a particular game. And I think another great example, actually, of a good old institution thinking about innovation all the time, prepared just not just to keep the lights on, but to do something different. Nick, is there anything sport can learn about innovation from the way other large organisations operate? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I came into post at uh, Sport England, which is 2013, virtually no sports had an insight division. They, they did not understand their customers. They knew nothing about their customers very often. So you had a sport like, say, cycling. There's over 3 million people who cycle regularly in Great Britain. But um, at that time, cycling had a database of less than 100,000 people. So they, they really have to understand and learn about insight and the use of data. Uh, sports have been really poor generally. And I know there's some one or two standout examples, but generally they've been very poor to modernize and, and work to see how data can use them because they've been concentrating largely about on the field play. All right, thanks for the moment. Stay with us as we look at where innovation can flourish next. Nick, we mentioned earlier that you're chair of Sport England, a non-departmental public body. Can all three of you share with us any examples you feel highlight thriving innovation in the public sector? Uh, well, I'm, of course, going to use an example from Sport England, aren't I? Um, you know, I talked earlier about the fact that sport hadn't been very good at using insight. And one of the things that uh, I think Sport England has shown is a really great example of that. We came up with a campaign called This Girl Can, and it came out of our extensive research and understanding of what the barriers were for uh, young girls, women, all ages, uh, to them taking part in sport. And it wasn't necessarily what people thought. It was very often the fear of being judged. And so with that as an insight, we created this brand, This Girl Can. Um, we uh, got permission from government to invest a lot of money, which is very unusual for government in uh, a brand, in developing and extending a brand. And the result of that is that we've had hundreds of thousands of women taking up sport. We've very substantially closed the gap uh, that exists between men and women taking part in physical activity. You know, uh, in our book, we have an entire chapter on government-based innovation. Ismail had to push me to do this thing because I didn't associate government with innovation until he started pointing out examples to me. And now when I look, I see some incredible things happening in places you would never expect. Take India as an example. You know, they used to have these five-year plans courtesy of the uh, Soviet Union, Russia. They were mimicking it and that's how they used to do their planning. So the planning commission 
when Modi came in, was reinvented as what's called Niti Ayog. Really, uh, and instead of having a minister heading it, they have a CEO heading it, Amitabh Kant. And, you know, most recently, um, uh, Niti Ayog held an AI conference, artificial intelligence conference, in which the prime minister kicked it off. And he gave a speech that blew me away. He talked about what AI is making possible and how India is going to take the lead on AI and why it needs to be used ethically. This is the Indian prime minister talking about uh, innovation using artificial intelligence. But this is because of government department, Niti Ayog, which was able to now uh, bring in an entirely new innovation culture into the country. And you've heard about uh, you know England now. I mean, who would expect the UK to be innovative? Yet, you know, as- hey, steady on, steady on. Why, why not? Come on. <laughs> well, 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 Isabel has been pointing out great, great examples, including uh, you know sports. I mean, so this is uh, a surprise to me. Ismail, I'll hand it over to you because I'm the skeptic here who's eating his words now. Yeah, this is the man sitting on the West Coast giving us a hard time. But but the, the Indian example is a good one, actually, because when you think about Adha, and you've talked about that in the past, Vivek, right, which is the largest biometric identity program in the world covering 1.2 billion Indian citizens, right? Uh, each recipient receives a unique ID and submits their fingerprints and so on. So it raises lots of conversations, of course, around... Uh, security and uh, what people are giving up. But th- that's innovation at a massive scale. And then I'll give a couple of other examples. One is I'll talk about in Belgium, they have launched this program around uh, certifying and giving badges to people around skill sets and experience, not necessarily around diplomas and certificates. And employers are using these badges uh, in addition to the certificates to make employment decisions, which actually gives a more holistic view of what the capability of an individual might be. And then when you talk about innovation, you, you, you've got to talk about Estonia. Now, Estonia didn't have any of the baggage that a lot of countries had when they built their new infrastructure. So they've gone digital from day one. Um, and, and the interesting thing about them is they have conceived this idea of data embassies where they physically store the information about their people and the technology that's needed in their embassies under Estonian jurisdiction. So, you know, I think we're beginning to see incredible innovation. Now, sport is well known for its diversity. Does diversity always lead to better innovation? Nick, let's come to you. Uh, Well, while sports participation is definitely well known for diversity, you can't say the same for leadership. You know, for far too many years, our major sports organisations have been led almost entirely by elderly white men. And I think that in itself has resulted in those organisations seeing sport in a very narrow way. So diversity in all of its meanings, but especially diversity of thought, will inevitably lead to better innovation. All organisations need to have that challenge to innovate. And if you all look the same, if you all sound the same, if you all come from the same background, you won't have innovation. And that's why every single study we've ever seen shows that diversity leads to better organisations. In our research, this significantly as well. When I came to Silicon Valley, I documented that 52% of the startups here were founded by foreign-born immigrants, 52%. So the most innovative place on the planet is you know, as diverse as could be. But I would, I would sort of broaden out the diversity uh, discussion to different, right? And why we need different for innovation. And 
And Vivek and I talk about an example, Vivek, if you remember around from the Pixar studios uh, and the filming of the book of The Incredibles, right? Uh, and here was an example of the film director wanted to make a movie that everybody in the studio told him would not, it was technology impossible. And what they were saying was that in this movie, you need to have flowing hair, which computer graphic systems at that, at that time just could not animate. And so what the film director did was he actually went to look for all the people who were different, disgruntled, who couldn't get uh, their points of view heard, who loved the idea of doing this work, but couldn't work within the constraints of all the policies of Pixar Studios. Um, and he actually formed a flock of black sheep, which is what he called it, who were told to break the rules and just solve the problems. And as you look at, as you read about this particular case study, what comes across is the difference, a diff different way of thinking, the different backgrounds, the different experiences, different gender and uh, all sorts of demographics, which allowed these people to put all sorts of different ideas on the table. And in doing so, Pixar created an entire new way of doing an animation and the highest grossing animation film series in the history of cinema. Nick, are there examples where innovators have come in and disrupted your sector at the expense of some of the big national bodies? Uh, yes, we've seen it th really uh, throughout the last 50 years, you know, going back to cricket in the 70s when Kerry Packer started what became known as the Packer Circus through to more recent times in cricket with the ISL in, in India. Um, there have been so many examples in, in running in, in Britain and now worldwide an organisation called Park Run. Uh, what these all have in common is that they've looked at the status quo and they thought we need to change that how do we do it whereas i'm afraid to say very often governing bodies as i've said before just concentrate on serving their current membership and they're not particularly interested in changing that there's a famous example in britain from soccer um, some years ago when five-a-side soccer uh, went to the football association and said, can we work with you uh, to develop a five-a-side offering? And at the time, the FA said, absolutely not. Not only do we not want to encourage you, because you're not the real game, the real game is 11-a-side on grass pitches, but we're going to change our rules, and we're going to say that referees who um, take part in your five-a-side can't take part in 11 aside, they were putting up barriers to entry, you know, typical anti-competitive behaviour. Now, a question for all of you now. Taking people with you on a period of rapid transformation always appears to be a challenge. How do you drive behavioural change well? You have to really trust your people. You have to motivate them. You have to inspire them. You have to realise, as, as Nick said earlier, that it's, it's, you know, your people, the lowest level people who are going to be the most innovative, not just the top. It isn't the CEO who's going to solve the company's problems or the R&D departments. It's going to be, a, a, you know, people, junior, senior, you know, from different parts of the organization coming together, brainstorming, crowdsourcing, you know, pushing each other that are going to lead you to success. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But for me, it starts with values. Um, you have to have organisations which are values driven, because if they don't have the right values, they don't live and breathe those values, transformation will always be seen as a challenge internally. And for far too many organisations that you come into, even if they've got values somewhere 
tucked in their drawer. They, they don't really live them. For someone like Sport England, uh, collectively, uh, for London Marathon together, those are two really important key values which we live. Those reminders of our values are in our everyday lives. They're on our desks, they're on our walls. You know, our bonuses at London Marathon are in part driven by demonstration of living values. Yeah, I mean, I just build on that, actually, because, I mean, I go back to that Simon Sinek's quote of people don't buy uh, what you're doing, but why you're doing it. And I think teams don't follow leaders unless they understand and buy into the why they're doing it. Uh, and I think this purpose-driven and values-driven approach that Nick talks about actually becomes the single biggest mobilizer of driving change. Nick, how much does social and environmental issues play a part these days in sports decision-making process when it comes to change? Uh, nowhere near enough. Um, we've seen some pockets of best practice. Um, you know, I'd say London Marathon, you know, we've tried to move away from uh, single-use plastics. Uh, all of our bottles are recyclable. We used um, a uh, edible pod for delivering uh, drinks, uh, as an example from last year. But for most of our organisations, they've been focused on medals and competition and getting people to play their sports. And to be fair to them, that's because they were told to do it by Sport England and UK Sport. It wasn't part of their raison d'etre, it certainly wasn't part of their values. Um, and I think that we are going to see a shift in that. The, the good organisations, you know, one of my clients as a lawyer is the Wimbledon Championships, and they quite clearly do see um, societal and environmental issues as being key to what they do. Uh, but at the moment, sports are facing, I'm afraid, an existential crisis um, because of COVID-19. We're going to see a lot of sports organisations struggling to survive in the next 18 months. And I'm afraid for some of them, and I don't agree with this, but for some of them, they see uh, social and environmental issues as an add-on rather than at the core of what they do. And that's what it needs to have is a shift in attitude and belief, which says that actually our purpose includes uh, the purpose of the three P's, sustainability, people, places, and the planet. And if you do that, then it will be core to what you do. Well, finally, as we've seen large businesses fall by the wayside, how do you see the sporting landscape evolving over the next five years? Well, I think anyone who says that they can predict the future at the moment is mistaken. And I know that I've made lots of mistakes over the last 12 months about the future. So try and do it for five years. Um, <laughs> there was an interesting piece recently, which uh, I think it was Matthew Said, a, a journalist, wrote about because you can't be certain about planning the future, it's about how you plan rather than what you're planning for. And what I'm hoping I will see in the next five years is more agile planning, organisations that are more connected to their locality. One of the things we've done in Sport England is try to have uh, less central control, bringing it down to local organisations um, so that you can work together rather than competing against each other. One of the problems we've had in sport is that people trying actively to do down other sports in effect because they're so focused on their own outcome. Whereas if we work together, then it doesn't matter what the innovation is, whether it's e-sports or whatever, or AI or whatever it might be. If we work together, 
then I think we've got a better chance. And that's what I'm hoping to see uh, in the sporting landscape over the next five years. Nick, thanks very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And thank you for this opportunity. Well, it feels appropriate to end with some sort of sporting challenge for the three of you. Uh, Nothing too energetic, of course, after what you told us earlier. So how about a game of virtual tiddlywinks? Uh, Vivek, would you like a head start? I don't know what tiddlywinks is. Um, (laughs) I'll just try to follow. (laughs) Okay, well, that's it for this edition. But do subscribe to our series wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss an episode. We'll be back soon with another special business guest. Until then, from me, Justine Green, Vivek, Ishmael and Nick, it's goodbye. The Incremental to Exponential podcast. Back soon.